Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Frank Pizor. So without further ado, here he is. Oh, welcome to uh, Harvest Community Church this morning. It's good to have you here. If you'd like to open your Bibles to Judges, chapter 6. Heath, once again, did a really good job on the uh, Gideon part there with all the things that are going on at home with a new baby and all the stressors that they have going on. It's really good that he's uh, done this for us. Um, Today, I wanted to talk about how God dealt with Gideon and uh, his doubts. Have you uh, ever wondered or said to yourself, God, uh, what are you doing? Or, God, uh, where are you? Uh, And those, in a sense, are an expression of doubt. Uh, It happens at very unique times. Um, I don't know how many of you at 9-11 were wondering, you know, what is going on here? Where is God in the midst of all this, this craziness? Or if you've ever come across a family member or a friend of the family or a coworker who has had a, a young son or a young daughter who at an early age has cancer and dies. Uh, my wife's piano student about a week and a half ago at, at like 11 or 12 years of age goes again in for heart surgery because she has these heart difficulties. And we might begin to wonder, where is God uh, in all of this? Uh, It gets even worse when you're going through a difficult season of life. Uh, Maybe you have lost your job and you're concerned about how you're going to continue to make ends meet, which all over the nation you're seeing what's happening. Uh, People who are losing their homes uh, after they've lost their jobs. You may be working through uh, marital difficulties for years and in, in the midst of all that, just always wondering, God, what are you doing? God, what's going on here? Uh, And then it might even get worse when you're at the workplace and you're running into all kinds of nice people, people of other religions, people of other or diverse beliefs, and and begin wondering yourself, is is God in the midst of this? Because these nice people who don't know Christ may have this eternity without Christ, and it doesn't make sense. And we wonder, where is God in all of this? And that's why I like Gideon. Uh, Gideon, in in a sense, is not necessarily a story of faith, even though he ends up in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, but I I think he ends up there for a reason, as we'll see later on. But to understand Gideon, you sort of have to understand the times in which he lives in. Judges comes after the book of Joshua. Joshua was a book of victory, of seeing God fulfill his promises to his people. And yet when we come to the book of Judges, now what we're going to see is God is still going to fulfill his promises to his people like we talked a few weeks ago. But now we see instead of the people being conquerors, they fail to actually conquer the land. They fail not because God has left them or isn't willing to fulfill his promise. It's because the people have stopped following after God with a whole heart. And the book of Judges then becomes a cycle or a spiral downward of sin and how each time the people repent and come back to God, they fall away again and it gets worse. What we see here in the midst of all this, when it gets bad, the people ultimately will cry out and say, God, God, help us. And so God raises up a bunch of judges, uh, judges like Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, uh, Deborah and Barack, and all of these, and not Barack Obama, by the way, just for you that are all wondering, it's a different one, 
but raising up all of these people uh, to deliver the Israelites. Which I hesitate saying that because years ago I once said deliver the Israelites, and my wife has never forgiven me for that and always brings it up. But to deliver the Israelites in, in the midst of their sin. They repent, they turn, and they come back to God. And so what we have here when we look at Gideon is another one of these downward spirals. And so seven years before the angel of the Lord meets with Gideon, the people have again turned their backs on God. And so for seven years, the Midianites come in during the harvest and they devastate the land. It's absolute devastation. And what has happened over these seven years, the Israelites have finally learned, you know what, instead of losing everything, let's just go into hiding. Now think about this. They're supposed to come in as conquerors. They're supposed to be feeling safe and secure because God is with them and he is faithful to his promises. Instead, they are hiding in caves and dens and and strongholds in the mountains, places where, in a sense, uh, they are not really living like they could. They are not living freely. But for seven years, they continue in this cycle. And finally, God does something and he sends a prophet. And the prophet says, Hey, Israel, the reason you're in this difficult situation right now is because you have walked away from me. And because you have walked away from me, repent. If you would simply repent, if you would turn back to me, then I would return to you and I will rescue you. And that's really what's going on here as we get to this place where we see Gideon. Now, when we look at Gideon, in my own personal opinion, which doesn't really hold a lot of weight, I think Gideon gives Thomas a good run for being the poster boy of a biblical doubter. And so I'm going to look at three snapshots of situations where Gideon was with God, had the opportunity to see God do things, and yet he still doubted. I ultimately want to get us to a place where we can see how God handles doubt. So the first snapshot is the oak tree. So if you guys want to flip that puppy up there, the oak tree. Ooh, it doesn't look as good as it did at home, that's for sure. Read with me Judges chapter 6, verses 11 through 16. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah, which again, not to be confused with Oprah. The idea of the sitting down here, though, is that the angel of the Lord is in control. He's sitting down. Everything is cool. I have it under control. So he sits down. This oak tree belonged to Joash, a Berezite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress to keep it from the Midians. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Okay, now that's pretty interesting, isn't it? If you've read the story before, it's the fact that God says, Hey, Gideon, uh, you're a mighty warrior. You're, you're the man's man, the man of the moment, the man on the spot, the man on campus sort of thing that he's saying here. But where is he? Gideon is in hiding. Uh, he's hiding. He's, he's off in a place where no one can find him, and he's taking care of the harvest part that he has left. He's afraid to get caught. And now the angel of the Lord sits down and says, You are a mighty warrior, a valiant warrior. And really what is happening is that the angel of the Lord, God himself, sees something in Gideon that Gideon does not see. But the really cool thing is, look at how Gideon responds. He says, but sir, if the Lord is with us, 
why has all of this happened to us? In other words, why are the Midians coming year after year and ruining everything and chasing us into the mountains and we're all hiding? You know, what's going on here? That doesn't make sense to me. But he goes on, he says, Where are all God's wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hands of Midian. Here, in a sense, is a serious case of doubt. God comes and says, dude, you are the man of the hour. You are the man's man. You are the man for the moment. I have raised you up for a reason. You are a mighty and valiant warrior. And Gideon says, wait a minute. I don't know about this God thing. Because I look around me and I see all of these horrible things going around and I see that I'm up here hiding and you're calling me this mighty warrior. Where is this God? I mean, I really don't understand what's going on because I remember in my, when I was growing up, my parents, even though now they're pagan idol worshipers, <clears throat> told me about this God who did all these miracles and brought the people out of Egypt, but he's nowhere to be found. What is going on here? Where is God? Gideon raises a simple question, does God care? I mean, does God care about his people? Does he not see what is going on? Now, in my unpastoral moment, here's what I would like to say to Gideon. Duh. Hello? Did you not just hear the prophet say why you are in this difficult situation? You're in this difficult situation because as a people you have turned away from God. And because you have turned away from God and he is faithful to his promise, he told you that if you turn away from me, this is what will happen. Don't you get it? It would be like the person that sits down with the pastor and says, you know what, pastor, I don't understand why I feel so empty and so lonely. God told me to do this. I not only didn't do it, but I did the exact opposite just to show him who's in charge. And you'd like to answer, then don't you understand why you're feeling this way? That would be my response to Gideon. Now, of course, that is not the best response, correct? And neither is it the response that God gives. I just love God's answer. Look what he says in verse 14. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Isn't that a cool answer? When you look at that answer, this is what Gideon said. Gideon said, Does God care about us? And God could have launched into an explanation. Dude, I sent the prophet. He explained the thing. You have a little bit of writing so you can understand that. But God absolutely ignores what Gideon is talking about, what Gideon is saying, and responds again with an affirmation that I am with you. I mean, again, he says, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? That's a great answer. I mean, how does God deal with our doubts? Gideon is expressing legitimate doubt. Does God care about us? Because when I look around, I don't see it. God's response is by not even responding to the question and saying, yes, I care. I care because I've sent a prophet. In fact, I cared even before that by sending this discipline because as Charles Spurgeon said, God does not allow us to sin successfully. Because God does care because God does love us, the discipline that comes in our lives from the hand of God is to wake us up and see that something is wrong and should be straightened out and can be. God isn't saying, listen, you guys have blown it, it's over, I'm going to destroy you. But he says, listen, here is a problem, but if you will turn back to me, I will rescue you. See, God does not want his children 
to sin successfully, and so he sends not only the discipline, but the prophet. And the good thing is that in all of this, God can handle Gideon's doubt. Look at Gideon's response then in verse 15. It's one filled with faith. But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest clan in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Okay, if you read those verses, there's no faith there whatsoever. It's full of doubt, isn't it? Again, he's saying, what? You're calling me a valiant warrior. You're calling me the man on campus. And you don't know who you're talking to, do you? I mean, I'm the youngest son. I'm the weakest guy in the clan. I'm a big, fat nobody. And you're telling me to run off and save this nation from the Midianites. That, to me, God, does not make sense in any way, shape, or form. He's expressing doubt. He raises a second question. It's this, God, do you know what you're doing? I mean, first it's, God, do you care? But now it's, God, do you know what you're doing? How could you pick me to do this great and grand thing? There's just absolutely no way. You're lost. You are clueless. You have no idea what you're doing. It's an expression of doubt. And many of us, as God speaks into our lives, would say, who am I? I can't do anything. Well, how does God handle it? Then look at God's answer. Verse 16, the Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites together. I mean, God basically says this, and your point is, does it make sense? Gideon says, I'm weak. I can't do it. And God says, and your point is, it's not about you, Gideon. I will go with you. I am the one who is going to use you to deliver Israel from the Midianites. Understand that. See, God is dealing with his doubts. He's not rebuking him. He's not saying, you are an idiot. Just believe. He's working with him and saying, just trust me. I will be faithful to my promises. So our first snapshot here is to understand that God is saying in the midst of of Gideon's doubt is that I am with you and I do care and I do know what I'm going to do. Which brings us to our second snapshot, which is the fleece. No, not this fleece, Gideon's fleece, nor this fleece, but this fleece. Man, they look so much better at home. I don't know what the deal is, man. It kind of takes away the fruit of it all. You know the first fleece? You guys, you got all that? Okay, great. Look what happens. Yes, you're all wondering, how does he not be able to handle that? <clears throat> Slip down to verse 36. This is the part that everyone kind of remembers about Gideon. And, and a lot of us like look at this passage and go, man, this is a really cool passage. I'm going to lay my fleece out. And I want to say, if you ever lay out a fleece, it is because you're full of doubt. Look what happens. Verse 36. Gideon said to God, if... All right, now let me give you some context. After the angel of the Lord sat down at the oak tree, and if you can picture this in your mind, and he's having this conversation with Gideon, talking about whether God cares and what God knows, whether he's doing or not. They sit down, and uh, afterwards Gideon says, okay, fine, I believe what you're telling me, and now I'm going to offer this sacrifice. He offers the sacrifice. God accepts the sacrifice. It's a sign. It says, Gideon... I am with you. This is the sacrifice. Everything is cool. 
God comes back to Gideon and he tells him, you know what, I want you to knock over this pagan idol in your village and uh, don't worry, I am with you, I will protect you. Gideon does it and instead of getting killed, he's actually saved. And after this, the spirit of the Lord comes upon Gideon, he blows his horn and about 32,000 guys come and join him to fight the Midianites. So here they are camped out at night and they're getting ready in a couple days to face the Midianites who are an overwhelming army and he's beginning to have some doubts. And there's again verse 36. He says, Gideon said to God, if, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. It, this is an expression full of doubt. If, you know, God, if you can really do this, then I will trust you to do this. But before you do that, can you just give me a sign? Can you just give me a sign? It's an absolute expression of doubt. What he's really doing is asking a third question. Does God really keep his promises? Will God, you, will you keep your promise? If you're really going to keep your promise, then have this fleece be wet and the fleece be wet and the ground dry all around it. Then I will know that you are really with me, and we will deliver the Israelites from the Midianites. An absolute expression of doubt. And look at how God answers. I mean, again, at this point, I would think saying, Gideon, you know, it's enough. But God again answers in a very unique manner. <clears throat> Verse 38, and this is what happened. God doesn't even speak. You don't hear anything. Here's a man full of doubt, not really sure that God is going to do what he says he's going to do, and God understands that, and he handles it because he's in control. And he says, fine, if that's what you want, this is what I will give you, and that is how it happened in verse 38. But it goes on. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me just ask one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night God did so. I mean, here again, the next night, still not convinced that God is really with him, still not convinced that God is faithful to his promises, he has to have another sign. This whole thing is loaded with doubt, but God again handles it and does exactly what Gideon has asked him to do. How does God handle our doubts? God can handle it. It's not difficult for him. I don't see him growing impatient with Gideon because, remember, he has 32,000 guys with him. The promise that God has given him is that God will be with him and give him victory. But he looks out over the other side and he sees 135,000 Midianites and realizes for every man ultimately that he will have, he is greatly outnumbered. It's understandable to have a little bit of doubt. But the problem here with this passage is many of us in a modern way think, you know what, I'm going to lay out a fleece because if I lay out a fleece, then this will confirm what God really wants me to do. When really, it's an expression of doubt. The real faith is to say, if this is what God has asked me to do, then I will trust. How many of you ever done this thing where you go like, if so-and-so calls me at 7.50, then this is what God wants me to do. 
kind of like, if this girl calls me at 7.50, then she really likes me, and God thinks that I should marry her, and so that's what I'm going to go with. What happens if you call at 7.51? Doesn't that create a little bit of a problem, a little bit of a tension? Unless you go, oh, my clock is off by a minute, so we're getting married. It misses the point. You see, because when you're saying something like that, what you're really saying is, I'm not really sure that this is what God wants me to do. And I can even remember in my past times where I have actually done things like that. What I've really said to God is, I really don't like your answer, but if you're willing to work with me, give me a sign. Let me have a sign. And I remember one retreat, one kid got up and he shared his testimony. He said, I came back to God because I saw this shooting star in heaven and I knew that it was just for me and God was saying, return. Brother, the speaker's been saying that all week long. You didn't need the shooting star. But we run off with things like that and say, this is something that God is saying, this sign that I desperately need to know that this is what God wants me to do, when in many ways God has already expressed it. Think about it. All these times, God has been saying, Gideon, I am with you. He has given him success after success answer to prayer after answer to prayer, and still Gideon is full of doubt. Let's move on. Snapshot number three. The dream. Sliced bread. Uh, I use sliced bread for a reason because part of the dream bread is in there, and there's a good joke about this. I think I've told you this already, but you know how we always say the greatest thing since sliced bread? Right? The greatest thing since... What was the greatest thing before sliced bread? I've always wanted to know that. Anyway, moving on. Thanks, Jonathan. I appreciate that. Because <laughs> that was pretty bad. Okay. Uh, Judges chapter 7, verses 9 through 15, giving you a little context once again. <clears throat> Gideon has, has seen God answer in great ways. And now here, uh, he's going to face 135,000 Midianites and all the guys that are with them. God has worked things out in a very interesting way. He looks at this army and he says, Gideon, you have 32,000 guys. It's a little too much. Um, You're only outnumbered four to one, and uh, we need to increase the odds. So get rid of 22,000 guys. Uh, So he gets rid of 22,000 guys. He has 10,000 guys left. And God looks and says, you know what? This really isn't too good either. You have 10,000 guys. Uh, Let's increase the odds a little bit more. I want you to get rid of some more guys because right now it's only 13 and a half to one, and that doesn't make sense. They get to a place where finally he only has 300 guys. And God says, fantastic, 450 to 1. This is my odds. I like the way this is going to work out. Now, if you're Gideon, what are you thinking? If I'm Gideon, switching roles here, I'm a little bit nervous. Okay, 450 guys to 1. That means if you're able to kill one guy a minute, how is that? 450 minutes. That means you're just swinging and swinging and swinging and swinging, and they're not just going to overwhelm you. I mean, this is not a Bruce Lee movie where Bruce Lee stands in the middle, and one guy comes out and gets his face smashed in, and then the next guy comes out while 30 guys stand around him. Have you ever wondered why they don't just all jump on him at one time? That doesn't make sense to me. But here are the odds. It is 450 to 1, and God says, this is fantastic. I love this. I am with you, and I'm going to deliver the Israelites from the Midianites. This is fantastic, and uh, Gideon's not fully on board. Look what happens in verse 9 of chapter 7, though. Excuse me. During the night, the Lord said to Gideon, 
Okay, this is a little different from the previous fleece thing, isn't it? It was Gideon said to God, if you can do this. Here in verse 9, it's God who comes to Gideon. It's God who initiates. This man is, is full of doubt. He's on the verge of facing an army that he has no strategy, no idea of what is going to happen here and how God is going to pull this off. And the Lord says in verse 9, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, which obviously he is, and rightfully so, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the group. So God is saying, go down there. I've got a little surprise for you. And when you come back, you're just really going to be happy and ready to go. So he and his servant went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern people had settled in the valley thick as locusts. A lot of guys there. Their camels could be no more counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. He said, I had a dream. Not Martin Luther King, but he says, I had a dream. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this is a, this is a great response, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the Israelite. Where do they come up with this stuff? I mean, how do you know about Gideon? Gideon, a few weeks ago, is hiding in the mountains taking care of his harvest. He is the smallest of his clan, and for some reason the name Gideon is on this guy's tongue as he's interpreting the dream of this other guy. God, and this is the interpretation, God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. In other words, these two guys are sitting there talking about this dream and saying, it is over, it is done, we're as good as dead. And the cool thing is God initiates, one, the dream, and then the interpretation, and brings Gideon to this place where he actually runs across these two guys. Now think about this. There's probably 134,576 of those guys sleeping. They're all having dreams. But Gideon, for some way, comes across this one guy who has had this one dream, who has this one friend who interprets the dream correctly. How does God handle Gideon's doubt after doubt after doubt after doubt after doubt after doubt? He encourages him. This is all the painted picture of where I really want to go with this. God can handle our doubts. But he calls us to keep moving forward. Gideon is not in the mountains when he has this opportunity to ask God for two more signs with the fleece. He is on the move. He has raised up the army. Something is going on. Yes, he still has doubt. But God is with him and God is going to be faithful to his promise. He keeps moving, knowing that God can be trusted even in the midst of his doubt. And even when he is on the verge of battle with only 300 guys, the original 300, does now God go, yes, keep moving forward. And Gideon will attack. And Gideon will be successful because God is with him and he is faithful to his promises. Does that make sense? 
God expects us to keep moving forward in the midst of our doubts. So as you're there and you're saying, I'm having some very serious marital difficulties. It's been going on for weeks or months or years. It's not good. It is not pretty. I'm really beginning to wonder, God, where are you? Because I've been praying for a miracle or I've been praying for something to happen, but it's just not happening. And God is asking us to keep moving forward and doing what he asks us to do. You may not see the daylight for a while, but in the midst of those doubts, God is asking us to move forward. I was at a teen camp about two weeks ago to sit there and hear once again three stories of three different teenage girls who had been sexually abused to wonder where is God in the midst of this? How do you minister to someone with pain like that? Where is God? It raises doubts. It raises doubts in their mind, wondering if God really loved me, why didn't he do something? And then it reminds me of the first church that I went to and the stream of 15 teenage girls who went through the same thing in that period. And you say, God, what is going on? Where are you? Do you know what you're doing? Are you faithful to your promises? And God's response is, I am with you. Keep moving forward. It is not easy. If it were easy for Gideon, I think God would have said, snap out of it. Get a move on it. What is wrong with you? But that is not God's response at all. He works with Gideon in the midst of his frailty and his weakness, and Gideon keeps moving forward. In a sense, I believe that's part of the purpose of what we have here in Gideon, is that God is trying to let us see that he can handle our doubts. But it doesn't mean that he gives us a free pass to do whatever we want to do. It means that he wants us to keep moving forward because he can be trusted, though it really doesn't seem like he really can be. Let me see if you can tell me who the person is that said this. And I promise Pastor Dave will buy lunch for those who get it right. Okay, maybe not. I'm not faithful to my promises. Okay, fine. Pastor Dave will buy you lunch to be faithful to my promise. Who said these words? Jesus has a very special love for you. As for me, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and do not see. Listen and do not hear. Who who said that? Can anyone figure out who that is? Uh, It's a really tough one. It's kind of like yesterday when we're sitting in the cultural uh, connection seminar and and, uh, Jason was asking questions that you know you don't know unless you look in the book and you kind of feel, but I see a hand raised up in back. Is that Charles? Yes, you just won lunch with Pastor Dave. Wow, I'm impressed. Pastor Dave's taking you to McDonald's afterwards and all you get is a dollar hamburger. But you're still going. Yes, Mother Teresa wrote that. Now, man, I don't know what the deal is. I guess I can't do PowerPoint. Think about this. If Mother Teresa says this, we're all in trouble. Right? I mean, here's a lady who dedicated her life to Jesus, gave everything that she had over and over again to minister to the poor, to the lepers, to the downcast, the downtrodden, the hopeless, the helpless. And her very words are, the silence and emptiness is so great that I look and do not see, I listen and do not hear. 
In, her, in, in a book uh, entitled, Mother Teresa, Come uh, Be My Light, this is what it says. In more than 40 communications, many of which have never been before published, she bemoans the dryness, darkness, loneliness, and torture she is undergoing. She compares the experience to hell and at one point says it has driven her to doubt the very existence of heaven and even of God. She writes, The smile I have is a mask or a cloak that covers everything. She wonders if she's engaged in verbal deception. She says, I spoke as if my very heart was in love with God. Tender, personal love. If you were there, you would have said, What hypocrisy! You know how long this lasted? This woman that we look at as a paragon of Christian faith, it lasted for 40 years. Very possibly up until the day that she died. But here's the great thing about it. The writer of the book is not trying to say that faith isn't real. What he says is this, this book is proof of the faith-filled perseverance that has made her spiritually heroic. That's Gideon. It's Thomas. It's Mother Teresa. It's us. In the midst of our doubts, and in my opinion, there's plenty of reasons to wonder where is God and does God care and does he know what he's doing, but to keep moving forward and saying, I trust you. I trust your promises. I trust that you are with me, not because I'm special. Because Gideon wasn't necessarily special. This was a man coming from a pagan family with a father who was the high priest, in a sense, of that pagan family with the very idol in his backyard. This is not Billy Graham. This is some guy that is really an unknown who has a lot of doubts because he really hasn't walked in and understood who God really is. But God works with him and uses him and delivers the Israelites from the hand of the Midianites. God can handle our doubts because he's in control. He's not worried about what's going to happen. He can take care of it. There is nothing that is too big for him. Gideon trusts that. And even living clouded with doubt continues to walk forward. Now, I don't know how many of you guys are still reading through the Bible, but as you're, you're reading through and you, you read through the story in Judges, it is a tragic ending. Gideon, in the end, leads the whole nation back into apostasy because he's not grounded. He doesn't really understand. But we do. We understand. And there are story after story of hurt and pain here, but there are story after story that is here and shows that God is faithful to his promises. He can be trusted. He will work with us in our doubts, and he will bring us to that place where he uses us to deliver other people from sin and darkness and Satan. We need to keep moving forward, just like Gideon. Not to stop, not to throw a pity party, not to yell and scream and vent and holler, but to say, God, I do not understand. I have my doubts, but I trust you. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, we are here today to set our hearts on you. I'd find it hard to believe that everyone here is so full of faith that there's no such thing as anxiety or worry or depression or sadness or difficulty. I'd go so far to pray that it's probably here more than we even realize because we are so busy hiding, just like Gideon. Father, I would ask instead, in the midst of our struggles and our doubts, please, please strengthen us to continue walking with you, knowing and trusting that you are faithful, you are faithful to your promises, that you do care, you do love us, you do know what you're doing. And you will do what you said you would. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.